things in that. Okay, let me um, open us in prayer. Father, thank you for another chance to speak from the Word and from the book of James specifically and for the practical content of this book. And uh, so pray you just open our hearts up to learn specifically what we need to hear from this to be moved uh, in particular into... Um, the kind of repentance that he describes and to uh, to embrace that uh, as your gift. And, um, and Father, just I pray that you overcome my deficits in teaching it and just touch each heart again according to the word you have for them. And I uh, pray your spirit will be with us here powerfully tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so it's been at least a month since we've been in James and we were in chapter 3, which was all about the use of the tongue and then getting into relationships, discussing uh, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And so now we're going to move into this question of what causes fights and quarrels. And it's, it's going to be James 4, 1 through 10. But before I read that, let me just give... Let me give a vignette or a, a story to sort of set the, the context, um, and it's a discussion of a struggling marriage. So, so Mary and Bill are Christians, yet they fight constantly, and they both just seem to be angry all the time. It's really no surprise because just consider their history, which is emerging in their counseling. So. So for, for Mary, her family of origin, her mother was an alcoholic and just uh, sort of brutally, verbally abused her. Not physically, but, but verbally. And, and the dad was weak and would, would draw into her study and would not, into his study and would not give really any support or leadership in the family. And ultimately the parents divorced. Mary uh, blamed this on herself. Bill, uh, his dad never affirmed him, affirmed him uh, and he really just criticized him all the time. If he made an A minus, he said, "Why wasn't it an A?" And he attended all of his sporting events, and he uh, gave him constructive criticism. Uh, really, no, never any uh, congratulations or praise. Circumstances for Mary, uh, she's current circumstances, she's got a college degree, yet she's staying at home with the kids. She feels un unfulfilled, exhausted all the time, and is getting no affirmation whatsoever from Bill. Bill has no college degree. He works in a factory. He works hard, makes decent money, but his boss yells at him all the time and is critical. And, uh, and Mary recently has joined into that criticism. Unmet needs. Mary uh, obviously has a deficit of love from her parents, love from Bill. Bill has a deficit of affirmation from his dad. He has a father wound uh, and, and really a deficit now of, of respect from Mary. And then Satan, the role Satan's playing uh, 
and Satan, of course, is lying to them, accusing them based on their current weaknesses and struggles. So, so he's telling Mary, your life is meaningless. Uh, you messed up and married the wrong guy. You deserve so much more. He's telling Bill, you're a loser. Mary thinks she's better than you. Maybe she really is. Uh, she should probably have never married you. And then finally, mental illness. Uh, Mary, really, since she was a little girl, has struggled with, she couldn't put words to it, but just depression and anxiety. Um, more recently, her doctor has put her on, on Zoloft. Bill struggled with ADD as a child. He was medicated during school. He's no longer on any medicine. And now he just has a chronic low-grade sense of anxiety. Um, and he self-medicates with alcohol. He's not an alcoholic. He doesn't drink heavily, but he, he drinks enough to quell his anxiety. So can you see why they fight all the time? Is there any hope? So with all that baggage, maintaining a, a healthy, happy marriage is very difficult. It truly feels hopeless to both of them, and things, while initially seeming to get better with their counseling, have really spiraled out of control now and have gotten much worse. And Mary's counselor, her, her and Bill have separate counselors. Mary's counselor has, has informed her that Bill is unsafe. Um, not, not that he's going to hurt her, but that he's psychologically, emotionally unsafe. That he that his attitude, his very presence, is, is a damage to her psychological health. And so he has urged that they, they move out for a time, not that they get a divorce, but that they move away from each other for a time so that Mary can heal, she can work on herself, uh, and then maybe, just maybe, if Bill will get his act together and do the right thing, maybe then they can come back together for some exploratory sessions maybe moving back toward moving in together. So Mary shares all of this with a faithful friend, and, and this is a, a friend who has the rare discernment, very rare, to see the cliff that Mary and Bill are headed over. And she's a faithful discipler and prayer warrior, and therefore knows the Lord and knows people well. And she, seems, she has seen many marriages succumb to this kind of worldly counsel. So she urges Mary to forsake, to get away from this particular kind of counsel, and for her to urge Bill to do the same. And she recommends a church down the street which gives free counseling on Monday evenings to non-members. And also she urges Mary in the meantime, while, while she's waiting to get get on the list there at the church to to really read and meditate and deeply study James four, one through ten. Alright, so let's let's read let's read the passage. James four, one through ten. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So, so why can't we all just get along? So James, inspired by the Holy Spirit, asked basically the same question. What causes quarrels and fights among you? And he answers it. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Okay, what's he saying? Well, first in the negative, he's saying that our quarrels and fights are not caused by our family of origin, by past trauma, by difficult circumstances, by varying backgrounds, by Satan, by unmet needs, by our lizard brain, by neurotransmitters. You fill in the blank, okay? He's very much, and I hope, hope you can see that. Now, now hear me, hear me clearly. <laughs> all of these things, all of these things can clearly influence us. And, and do you see the difference between an influence and a cause? What we're looking for is root cause here. Um, and all of these influences, all of these hard situations for, for Mary and Bill, and, it, and it, they could have even been much worse. It could have been sexual abuse for Mary. But any of these things function as trials, as tests. These are things which God has allowed in their lives and which God has said in his word they can be used for growth, for benefit. Remember we discussed extensively in James 1 about that. But the point there is is that they are never the direct cause of our fights and quarrels. Now, so what is the direct cause? Well, well James says it's that your passions within you. And, and as believers, as those who are converted, who know the Lord, who walk in Him, we still have a battle going on, right? We still have worldly desires or passions. The Apostle Paul writes to the Galatian believers, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. We have an enemy within and the battle rages. And remember, the enemy is not Satan. Satan is an enemy without who lies to us. We have the flesh, which is an enemy within. And remember James earlier, and in James 1, we talked about it briefly, but he stated that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. 
And he was making a point there. He said, he said, God doesn't tempt you to evil. The things that God allowed into your life, these circumstances, it's not him tempting you to evil. So therefore, those are not the cause of your sins or anything else that's going on. So what, what do we want? Each of us need to think about what deep down, what are, what are these desires that he's talking about? And sometimes our desires are clearly sinful. We want something that belongs to someone else. So we're, we're covetous. We desire privacy so we can look at porn or have an affair. We desire control over our church or family or workplace. We desire the glory and praise which is due only to God. But I would say probably more often as believers, we desire good things too much. What the reformers called inordinate desires. So it could be, for example, peace and quiet. Hey, hey, look, when I get home from work, can I not just have a few minutes to sit in the lazy boy? Is that too much to ask? Are you kidding me? Just a little peace and quiet? Or maybe for a husband it's respect. If she would only show me respect, our relationship would be great, and then I would be more romantic. Or for the wife it might be tangible expressions of love. Uh, if he would only come home and hold me tightly and say how much he missed me and ask about my day, then things could be good. Then I would respect him. And, and when we desire a good thing too much, it turns into a demand, right? It's no longer a desire. It's not, it's not I want, it's I must have. When someone blocks our demand, they're blocking our idol. They're blocking what we truly love and must have. So we judge them. I can't believe I ever, I don't even know what I ever saw in you. You're, you're the worst. I can't even stand to be around you. And we punish them. We punish them by, by leaving or by yelling at them or by going silent or by slander or by withholding something good from them or by passive aggression or you name it. You could, you could go on and on with that list of how we handle that. And I think this is what James means when he says you desire and don't have so you murder. I think he's using murder obviously metaphorically there um, of judgmental slander and verbal abuse. But he also makes the point that disordered desires lead to disordered prayers. So he says, you don't have because you do not ask. And remember how the Lord taught us to pray in a way that focused on his glory and asked for his kingdom to come and his will to be done. And when we're captivated by worldly desires, we're not asking for those things. So we lack blessing and contentment. You don't have because you don't ask. And rather, we turn our selfish desires into prayers. So verse 3 says, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Father, I'm just trusting you to change my boss's heart and have him increase my salary. I'm holding you accountable to your promises to meet my needs. Y'all ever heard that language, holding God accountable? Kind of crazy. Um, 
Father, please cause Jim to be more romantic. I deserve better. Father, please cause Jane, cause Jane to desire more frequent intimacy. You know I'm going to have to find it somewhere, if not from her. So all of this represents worldliness. It's interesting, when he started talking about worldliness, it threw me for a bit because I wasn't, I wasn't really thinking worldliness in that context, but it, but it clearly is. Verses 4 and 5, he says, You adulterous people, do you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? So what does he mean by a friend of the world, and why does he jump into talking about that? And I would say... If, if we are, if we're fighting and quarreling and our relationships are amiss, our first problem is with who? Not the person we're fighting with. Our first problem is with God. The first problem is vertical. So, so in that case, remember, we're, we're captivated by our own desires. We're focused on the things of the world. And our distorted desires have become idols. Something, than a, something other than God is necessary in our lives for contentment. Uh, we're seeking ultimately good in places other than the Father of lights. Remember, again, James' discussion in, in James 1. And, and how often, I wonder, do you guys, how often do you, when you've got a relational difficulty, do you consider it to be just strictly between you and the person? So you've left, and we, we get blinded, right? If we're, especially if we're angry, we get blinded and we leave God out of the picture. But how, how often do we fail to turn to God? First in repentance, and then for the intimacy which brings power to change. So this is why in, in Colossians 3, 1 through 4, you know the wonderful chapter 3 of Colossians where he's talking about putting off the old and then and then putting on the new and, and just wonderful relationships within the church. Do you remember how he starts out that discussion? He doesn't just start out with, with one another relationships. He starts out with, if you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not of, of things that are on earth. So he turns our focus to our life in God, to heaven, to Jesus Christ, before we start thinking about how, how we're going to relate, how we're going to put off our relational sins. So, so James is clear. If we seek to be a friend of the world, we put ourselves at enmity with God. It's as if we're telling God, stay away, I hate you. I don't want anything to do with you. And, and this passage made it, makes it clear. It says he, he yearns jealousy, jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. He's a jealous God. He won't tolerate adultery on the part of his bride. And remember, he's talking to believers. And why is that? Why won't God tolerate adultery in his bride? And that's because he has a great zeal for his own glory and a radiant love for his bride. Right? So what does he do? What does God do when his bride embraces the Lord? 
when she goes after an idol, when she takes on other lovers. Think about that. What, what does he say? What does he do? Considering that she deserves death, does he, go ahead and, does he go ahead and kill us when we do that? No. Verse, first part of verse 6 says, but he gives more grace. But he gives more grace. But what does that look like? What does that grace look like? How does it come to us? Does it look something like this? Consider this. Does God, would God say something like this? Come on back, honey. It's not a big deal that you've been whoring around. I'm just happy to have you around the house pretending to be my wife. I'm not into performance. I give unconditional positive regard. Maybe, well, maybe just don't bring your lovers into the house, but hasten to them. The last thing I want is for you to feel any shame. Wouldn't that be awful to feel shame? You might be psychologically damaged by that. So let's just say that I would prefer that you not have other lovers that don't want you to feel bad about it. Sound good? And would God talk like that? Well, that, that is ridiculous, and it's a bit of a parody, but, but really, that's what much of popular Christianity teaches about God's approach to grace. But what does James say that it means? What does... God's word say that it means. Let's read verses 6 to 10. Again, it says, But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So, so he says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So, so grace, we see that it, first of all, grace gives us a chance to repent. It, it draws us to repent. It allows repentance. It, it allows us to forsake adultery, to put away idols, to submit to God and resist the devil. And it's, it's tempting here, though, especially for those who reject cheap grace, it's very tempting to stop right there, to say, okay, I've got this. I, I, that's a strong word. I get it. Submit to God, resist the devil. I'm going to do it. I'm going to start going through every element of my life. I'm, going to, I'm just going to just work through all these things, my, my lust and my, my greed and my, my envy. I'm, just, I'm going to just work on all those things. I'm going to resist the devil. I'm going to do it, right? But, it, but he doesn't stop there, of course. Listen to verse 8. He says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts you double-minded. So, so this is incredibly important, and I, it, was, it, it was interesting to, to notice the flow here. So God doesn't ask us to take care of our sins first and then come to him, right? He doesn't ask us to totally purify ourselves and come to him. He simply asks us to bow the knee, to submit, to turn toward him. And then, if we draw near to him, he draws near to us. And, 
and he's saying in essence if if once we're within him once we're in god once we have have gotten out of enmity with him we've placed ourselves back in his in his way we're walking by the spirit in the apostle paul's terms then we can cleanse our hands and purify our hearts and what what does he mean there well i think i think clean, the cleansing of the hands is related to external actions so he's literally saying we can think through what what are what are our specific sinful actions but again we're thinking about it within the security of his embrace and we can purify our hearts which goes a step deeper again so now we're we're thinking about our actions such that we'll be led to think about how is that coming from the heart but but there we can deal with the sinful desires that have led to our conflicts that have led to the troubles we're having and then we come to verse 9 again another verse that at first to me it seemed it seemed kind of out of order but Verse 9, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now we've come into God's embrace and we've dealt with our sinfulness. Is that, is that the right order? You think some scribe got that verse out of order? Is, is now the time to be wretched and mourn and weep? Well, I think it absolutely is. Because <clears throat> you think about it for a minute. We've, we've, come, we've bowed the knee. We've come back to God. We're within his embrace. We're within the security of his embrace. And in that, we've dealt with our sin. Now is the time, now that the scales have come off. We're out of the darkness. Rather than walking toward the darkness, we've walked away from it. Now we're able to so clearly see his goodness juxtaposed with our sin. And it's the time that real godly sorrow can occur. It's the time to mourn and weep our sin. That our laughter return to mourning and our joy to gloom. But he's not going to leave us there, is he? So, so he's going to he's going to he's leading us in that to dependent humility. Now think about it. He started out saying humble yourself, and now he's getting back to to bringing us into humility. And what he's doing is progressively drawing us in to deeper humility, which will allow us to know him better and love him more. And he's bringing us to dependent humility that leads to exaltation. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Okay, wow, what a privilege, isn't it? Now that's grace. Not the cheap grace that Satan wants to insert. That's real grace. And it results in our purification for glory. It results in our connection with God in deeper intimacy and progressive movement toward dependent humility, toward dependence on Him. Okay, so what, what happened to Mary and Bill, the couple who were fighting? And remember, they were on the verge of divorce and their friend had said, you ought to go to this other counselor and had urged them to read, read this very passage. So, so the counselor at the counseling center uh, meets them on, on a Monday night and makes a little small talk, makes introductions, tells them a little bit about the church's counseling philosophy, and then, then really just sort of leans in and gets a very detailed history of everything that's going on. And, and he shows them great sympathy 
and he brings encouragement with regard to the the struggles of their life, the uh, the pain, the suffering in their lives, the hardships that they've described. And, and, and he talks about how God is able to heal such wounds and take them beyond such wounds. And then he gets a more recent history. He learns how they were saved and, and how their life in Christ has been since then. How they met and fell in love, the story of their married life leading up to this struggle. And, and it turns out that early on they had seemingly great life together, really before kids. They had lots of money, they bought a nice house, they were able to do lots of vacations. Just, and certainly they fought, but it just didn't, it wasn't that big a deal. They just quickly got over it because life was so good, so fun. They were in a great church with a, a preaching that they just thoroughly enjoyed and, and many good friends in that great church. And then they had kids and the stress started in their lives. And suddenly Mary went part-time and, and really even, even part-time work with everything at home was just so hard. Um, and their, debts, their debt became very difficult to manage. They perhaps bought a little bit too much house for, for their, their earnings. And Mary was very frustrated at home. Bill was very frustrated at work. And they both became very focused on their, their desires, which they interpreted to be needs. Right? They, suddenly they found themselves wanting a lot of things, very discontent, and feeling as if their needs weren't being met. Um, and Mary really just wanted Bill to love her like he did before. That's, she said, that's not asking too much, is it? Just, just that he would love me, just, just like the Bible says. And Bill, likewise, like the Bible says, wanted Mary's respect. See, she used to look at him with such admiration. Now she's just nagging all the time. And they both failed in many ways to satisfy the other, which led really again to disappointment and to anger and contempt and the fights we've already discussed. And again, the counselor that was referred to their church examined their painful past and really confirmed to them how messed up they truly were. How Mary's love cup was empty and how Bill desperately needed to save to have his self-esteem build up. A deficit caused by his father. And this approach, again, as it always does, initially seemed to help. But then, as they got increasingly self-focused, increasingly turned in, where things spiraled toward despair, and it began to appear that, that separation and divorce were imminent. And so, so the Faith Baptist pastor that was counseling them was very glad that Mary's friend had led them to James 4. Because the fact that they had already been looking at it and thinking about it made it very easy then to begin to address the truths that were there and how those truths specifically dealt with their problem. Um, and he really first showed them how their family of origin, how their former trials and pain, um, while certainly influencing their current behaviors, 
were not their cause. Again, he, he went through everything I've just discussed with them. And he showed them again how these are trials of various kinds designed for their growth, and he took them to James 1 and Romans 5. And then he was able to show them the true root of their problems. He was able to show them how, they've, how they had taken the, these deep desires, again, many of which were good, and let them morph into, need, into what they thought were needs, which became demands, and let them become idols of the heart. And how that had been led to this bitter anger and murderous language. And he showed them, he talked to them about their prayers. And he showed them how because of that their prayer life was amiss. Bill prayed, for example, how can I get her to respect me? Please make her respect me. Rather than, Father, please show me where I've sinned against Mary. How can I love her like Christ loved the church? How can I serve her? He showed them how they had become worldly and really left their first love. And therefore, he showed them how their most significant conflict, which again at this point they were completely missing, but how their most significant conflict was with God. And with that on the table, with, with bringing them to that point, to see, to see that they were not only at enmity with each other, but they were at enmity with God, he, he reminded them of God's great love for them and the grace that he had available for them. And, and, and he talked about, again, all, all the, this, this pathway that we just talked about, how God just invited them to, to repent, to bow the knee, to submit, and then to draw near to him and then within his intimacy to begin to deal with their own heart issues and to deal with their actions that resulted from that. And how then in that process they could lead to, they could be led to, to godly sorrow and to deeper humility. Deeper humility which then would allow them now to walk with God more, more clearly and to begin to now come to each other. So again, you can imagine that in that heart state, it became very easy for them to turn to each other, to confess their sins, to seek and offer forgiveness, and to come back together in Christ. So remember the cord of three strands that Clayton talked about a couple of weeks ago. That's so to come back into that position, the cord of three strands not easily broken. And so in that, they were able to lavish in the grace of God to worship him as the, Father, as the Father of lights and the giver of every good gift. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its beauty, for its power, for the grace that it always conveys. We thank you that even when you give us hard words, when you tell us we're worldly, when you tell us we need to turn, even again, even as believers, that it comes out of a heart that is fervently seeking us, that, that loves us dearly and that wants to draw us back in. Father, help us to see your great love. Help us in that to mourn our sin and to humble ourselves and to come close to you. In Jesus' name, amen.